Welcome to Teachers at a Crossroads. It's here that you'll hear Teachers Inspiring Teachers. We tell our own stories about the courage it's taken to make decisions when you're standing at that crossroads and take those first steps forward. Thanks for tuning in. My name's Kathy, and I'm going to be your host. So welcome back. And today we have caught up with Tracy Chambers. I met Tracy not so long ago as she recently moved into my neighborhood. And after chatting with her for a while, I realized she had quite a story to tell. A teacher who qualified in Australia, an Australian, and she was teaching in secondary. Her specialisms were English, or are English, modern and ancient history, and special needs. So she spent time in Australia, then she, well, she'll tell you the rest of the story herself, but it is a really interesting one, from getting into the Greek ancient history, to therapy with horses, to being totally disillusioned, to moving into charities, and then somehow finding herself in prison. I will leave Tracy to tell you about that. Over to you now, Tracy. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Kathy. When you first asked me to do the podcast, it was quite a revelation, actually, when you look back on your career and you begin to think about what started it off. I actually had no intention of becoming a teacher. I actually got a scholarship to Macquarie University. And that's actually what predicated the decision to move into teaching. I'd actually thought I'd make a really good social worker, but my mum said, actually, Tracy, you're going to be rubbish because <laughs> you haven't had any real life experience. After studying, finishing and getting all my degree, I found it very difficult to find a teaching job originally in Australia because we go on a listing system and they wanted me to go so far out back that I didn't feel I was ready for that move. So having been taught in an independent school, I actually went back into the independent system, which was a boarding school. So I worked as a boarding house mistress and, and taught. And probably my love of drama kept me at the school for a long time because I sort of put on productions and did lots of things like that. But after five years working in that particular school with privilege, with children who came from vast backgrounds of farming, I actually realised that I didn't feel very authentic as a modern and ancient history teacher and an English teacher. I'd never been to Venice. I'd never stand, stood at the Acropolis and looked down and understood the Grecian Wars. I'd never been able to see where Romeo might have stood and spoke to Juliet. I had <laughs> never seen where Jane Austen was buried and wrote most of her books, where the inspiration for Northanger Abbey came from, because Australia is a very different type of culture and right. it's, it's much more modern and we didn't have that richness. So after teaching for five years... I sold my car, I sold my furniture, <laughs> I boxed up my gear. My mum didn't even realise. <laughs> I dumped it in her garage and I said to my parents, I'm taking a gap year. Okay. So at my gap year, I decided that I had enough money to buy what's called a Eurorail pass. And they were the days that you could hitchhike. So I not only hopped on trains, buses, planes, every form of transport, I also hitchhiked right across Europe. So I went from Greenland, Iceland, Russia, most of Europe, the northern parts of the Arabic nations, but not south. And I got off and on, off and on buses, wherever I felt the need. I worked in bars, pubs, and 
it really gave me the inspiration to go back to teaching because then I felt I could authentically say, actually, this is what it looked like. And this is how long it takes to walk up that hill. And I would understand a little bit more of the stress, the, the climate that people were living under, particularly living in England for a lot of the time too, why people wrote so depressing stories early on. <laughs> living in the grey, I really understood that as well. So that led me eventually when I ran out of money to go back to England and to begin looking for temporary teaching posts. Okay. So, so you've now you've qualified as a teacher. You've packed everything and left that with your mum. You've taken how long? Just one year? Just travelling? About a year and a half. A year and a half. Wow. And you must have covered a lot of countries in that time to cover everything that you wanted to see. And somehow you've landed yourself in the UK. So what happens in the UK? Well, I was lucky because I had a dual nationality because my dad was a POM. For those who don't understand what POM is, when the convicts were sent to Australia, they had a little sticker on sign on their prison outfit called Prisoner of Mother England, POMI. And that's where it comes. And if it was Ireland, it's Pomai, it's as in Prisoner of Mother Island. Oh, my goodness. I so never knew that. That is where it comes from. And that's why Australians call the Brits Poms. So my dad's a Pom. So we went over and so I settled and it was Edmonton. These are the days before DBS checks and before anybody did anything. I had a, a folder in my backpack that had my qualifications and some references. I just rocked up to this school that gave me an appointment <laughs> and the next day I was teaching history. So uh, it <laughs> was a very different system of working <laughs> in the late 1980s than it is today. Then what followed, I suppose, in my second transition was I unfortunately met someone and married the wrong person, <laughs> which meant I got stuck in the UK for a very long time. And in that time, I became the breadwinner. So that meant not only was I teaching, I was also looking for ways to move up the ladder, as they called it. Yeah. And these were before fast tracking, before they offered lots of incentives. This was just solid hard work. Right. So I'd been everything from head of history, head of English. I actually was head of PE when I didn't even know anything, but I was really good at writing curricula <laughs> and putting lesson plans together. And so that's why they had me do it for a little while. Wow. I eventually got a more a permanent job. My qualifications were recognised and I was able to continue. Then I needed more of a stretch. So I then moved to assistant head. I had more ability to make change, to implement change and to see mm -hmm. what I felt was needed, particularly in the pastoral system, to support young learners when they were coming in the secondary sector. Right. Because the transition from primary to secondary can be just like us moving from, I suppose, school to university or any oh, part. Of course, yeah, is yeah, yeah. Traumatic. Yeah. So I was able to influence change as I moved up. And right. I think for many teachers, sometimes being in the classroom is great if that's what you yeah. love, but sometimes you want to influence change. Yeah. And if you do, you then need to be in a position where exactly. your voice can be heard. Exactly. Now, just, just let me pick up on that, if you don't mind. I think today what I'm hearing from a lot of teachers is that they've, they've got the experience. I mean, they're in their 40s. They've been teaching all their lives. They're now applying for jobs in schools, particularly in the UK. And yet those jobs are going to people who are two years QTS, you know. And 
you know, it just seems ridiculous that older teachers, particularly female teachers, are not getting the opportunities where they have the experience and the knowledge that can influence change. And of course, this is one of the big things that UNESCO really pushing is that change will come because teachers know what needs to change, not policymakers. So I think this is something that's very, very uh, real today. And you're talking about what year? This was probably 1992. 92, okay, and here we are in 2022. <laughs> and we still face those same kind of situations where if you're going to influence change, you've got to be a deputy head or a head teacher. You've got to start playing politics as well. Yeah, and it's quite hard, I think. They try and rush NQTs and early teachers through their teaching, and they believe just because they have the knowledge, they'll also have the toolkit that right. will go with that knowledge mm. to be able to adapt to all different situations. Right. You need a blend. Yeah. You need sometimes the new outlook and the the mod views of using, you know, podcasts like this or streaming or any form of social media, which is not my strength. But my strengths come from and many teachers come from the fundamentals and the core, what we would call the foundation basis, the functional basis. And many new teachers sometimes miss that. So what you find is that they're very creative, but they may not be what they call a complete finisher. They don't know how to do all the nitty gritty to get their vision in place. And that's why sometimes you need a mix of experience and the enthusiasm that might come with the new ones. Right, right. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So coming up to... I'd been an assistant head for a while, Deputy, and worked and I'd written a bid for when they were going for technology status, which was in the late 1990s, beginning of the 2000s, when schools were looking to have specialties. Right. The problem with specialisms is that some other subjects fall by the wayside. Yes. And so this was before they introduced STEM, all these new acronyms that came in. So this is before that they were looking at specialisms. I realised that my future didn't lie in that level of specialism. So this brings me to my next transition. So so how many crossroads have we had? We've had the crossroads jumping out of Oz. Yep. Then we've got the next crossroads hopping into the UK. And now now the third. My strengths lay in dealing with young people who faced real challenges. I had adopted and fostered two young boys who have had the worst early childhood experiences and who were completely disengaged from education and education failed them in more ways than I can count. So I switched completely into special needs and took up a role and became a head teacher in what's called a pupil referral unit, a PRU. There I found a completely new vocation not only finding creative ways to engage young people in the curiosity of learning, which mm-hmm. is essential mm-hmm. if they want to learn. Mm-hmm. Why? They say, Why do I need to know this? Why do I need to? And yeah. most teachers just say, because I had to show them a why. Right. Not only that, they were children that couldn't sit comfortably in a classroom. Right. They couldn't sit on a chair. They needed to move. They needed to fidget. They needed to get round. The bulk right. had ADHD or they had autism or they had some right. personality disorder or they had something. 
They had probably been through five or six schools. Their parents were despairing. Yes. Absolutely despairing. They had never been to a meeting with a head teacher without being told off. So my whole vision when I moved into the world of pupil referral units and most people who do choose this path is to break those stereotypes of teachers, head teachers, people in positions of power within education, that we are understanding and that we are not blaming and there's no blame culture whatsoever. There's accountability and responsibility, but no blame. Okay, I understand. So I worked in that sector for 12 years and after 12 years, unfortunately, one of the young men decided that he wanted to get into the building he wasn't a member of our school to get to somebody else and I stood in the way and he broke my jaw. So that led oh me God. to having some time off work and reevaluate. Right. And when I came back things had changed and I decided it was the right thing to do to step away for right. my own mental health and for I was probably quite burnt out by then having worked that long as a head teacher. So that brings me up to my fourth transition oh my gosh (laughs) go for it what happened next this is riveting so when you've worked in such a high stressful job as a head teacher you don't work nine to five days and you don't work without weekends and holidays and you give up a lot and I needed to find my own well-being again and my own balance Mm. and in that time I had horses 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 Okay. okay. And when I was with my horses, what I found was that the level of de-stress was instant. Not like a dog, not like a cat, not like an animal that was whatever. Because horses will basically do what they wish to do and you have to just work with them. You can't just feel like you can pick them up and they're going to do. They don't obey you in the way that you want. <laughs> and they're like, But what they do is they have a sense of calmness. Right. So they bring you down to a level where you are calm. So I thought, well, if this works, let me have a look and see if there are charities that work with horses. And there was one based in Milton Keynes. And I applied and then got a position working there. And so we worked with a different type of student. This was not a totally educational background. So for someone who's thinking of, I don't really want to be in a classroom anymore, but I still want to work with young people. This is a nice step sideways right. into the charity sector. Okay. Because there was an educational element where we learned about horses and horse care and just generally did a lot of artistic work. Right. And many of these children had been abused, were in social care system, okay. were elective mutes, right. um, oh, had gosh. high level autism and were unable to engage with others, poor social skills just generally needing to feel a safe place. So my horses and the horses that were used on the farm, Mm -hmm. they provided children with that. I used to work on weekends independently with my own clientele who were elective mutes from social services. And the children would come and they had horrific things happen to them. And one of my horses, Marmite, she was blind in one eye. Right. So, but she loved children more than adults right and she would literally stand there they could pull and yank and drag and lean against her and do this and she'd just stand and she'd put her head around them and give them a cuddle and many of the children began to whisper to her 
And then the whispering became speaking and the speaking became louder. We never listened in initially until later and then we could move closer and then I would be showing her what to do with the brush or something or him what to do, how to pick her feet up and things like that. And eventually those words formed. Right. And once the words formed again, then social services had a way in. Right. Then the therapy could begin. So it was a way to unlock the child in a safe environment. Oh, wow. Many of them just used to run up and just give her a great big hug. Wow, that's just incredible. So we did that for mm, nigh on two and a half years, nearly three years. And that brings me up to transition number five, where I realised I now needed to go back where the challenge was. Right. But I needed to be really clear as to what I wanted gosh yeah it really that that uh, maybe we'll revisit and we'll come back and talk to you again about the horses and that kind of therapy because i think i i mean i would as a teacher i would never have thought of something like that i'm not a animal person particularly but you know for some people it may be a complete from some teachers who really are at that stress point and they need to move out for them themselves is quite a nice therapy but to be supporting others particularly youngsters who've gone through trauma and are needing that kind of therapy. I would never have thought of that, so maybe we come back to that at some point. It is a good way to think about it. There is a huge charity sector out there that are always looking for people, and teachers have a huge skill base that they can um, adapt to that. So it is something that people should look at in when they're looking for jobs and you go in the TES. Have a look at the charity sector uh, or the voluntary sector because sometimes they employ people in the voluntary sector as well. Right, right. So transition number five was very different. Uh. Oh my, my son had, my oldest one, my foster, he'd returned back to care and been in and out of prison. And my own son had been in and out of prison. And the one thing both the boys had said to me was that the education in prisons was very, very poor right. because no real teachers, as they called them, yes. chose to work in that environment. Yes. So I, I saw imagine. a job for Milton Keynes College based within an education system based in... Brevale Prison, which is in Aylesbury. And that's a Category A prison for 18 to 21-year-olds. So we're talking young men who have had some very challenging sentences. And I applied and became the functional skills manager there and then worked my way up to deputy head. I can honestly say of all the settings that I have been in, it was one of the most rewarding. Gosh. I had already worked when I was a head teacher from children who were young as three in nursery settings because we covered the full spectrum of education and foundation learning. But I had never witnessed as many young men who had missed out on the basics, who had disengaged and education had disengaged with them at such an early age. So many men who could not read and write, could not add up. Although they could work a, a drug deal like you wouldn't believe, but they could not <laughs> right. they could not do anything else. They couldn't measure anything at all. They couldn't right. they couldn't Except work okay. a ruler, but they could work a, a scales. Yeah. But otherwise they were fine. They were desperate mm-hmm. to write letters home. All right. To read a story to their children. To be able to function and read a form, to fill in a benefits form, a passport form, anything. Right. So I found And the level of respect, given the type of young man we're talking about, the level of respect I garnered from these young people who respected that I didn't care about what they had done. I know that might sound hard for people to hear, but I needed to be only the teacher in that room, nothing else. I wasn't a judge. 
I wasn't anyone who was going to make any, you know, decisions about, you know, what I felt about what they had done. In fact, I deliberately didn't look up what their reason for being in prison was. Right. As far as I was concerned, they were a student just like anyone else that I was coming to learn and they wanted to learn. And as far as they were going to learn, I was going to teach them. At that prison, we had the first ever celebration evening. They'd never had one in many prisons. Parents came for the first time to see their children. And these are 21-year-olds receive a functional skills certificate in English and maths. The first time in their whole education experience. Oh my goodness. And I managed with the team to bring the education up from unsatisfactory and in special measures to right. good in two years. Wow. Oh my goodness. Gosh. So I can honestly say for any teacher thinking about moving off from mainstream, right. do it. Okay. There are so many other opportunities for you. Right. You need to be a certain person to work in the prison service. And you do need to have a good teaching background to do it. And you need to be someone who doesn't hold judgments. Yes. But no matter what your religious faith, we had many Muslim teachers in us with us and that really helped. Right. Because the the boys had to be respectful of culture, of faith, of belief. Yeah. So it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, colour skin, anything like that. Yeah. Step out sometimes away from mainstream and have a look right. at what's available. Right. That would be my advice. Yeah, because I think it's mainstream that, I mean, this is what everybody's running away from at the moment. Yeah. But maybe a, a time out of mainstream yeah. is what we need to kind of like regenerate ourselves and put our, our faith back in what we love doing, which is teaching. That we love to be with our students. Yeah. My husband yeah. had a stroke in 2017, which led me to move to obviously Spain. And then I began teaching online. And obviously I had my TEFL, um, but I was a linguistics teacher, so it was so much easier. Yes. Online teaching is you require a very different skill set. Yes. <laughs> and teaching a three-year-old to speak English online is, you know, I hope your puppetry skills are good because <laughs> you need a huge series of puppets, toys, <laughs> plastic things, plastic food. I have so many resources upstairs in my office. It's amazing. <laughs> but if I was to say anything about anyone, include travel in your plans. Oh, yeah. Because Some, if travel, yeah, absolutely. if you're teaching and you haven't traveled and you haven't seen, teach somewhere that isn't your comfort zone. Yeah. Teach somewhere that makes you think. Okay. And okay. the most important thing, get your work-life balance right. Yes. Tracy, I cannot thank you enough for sending your time here this morning because I know your time is precious, especially when, you know, you're, you're caring for your husband as well as a result of the stroke. So thank you very much. I can't thank you enough, actually. Thank you for inviting um, me. Thank you so much, Tracy, And thank you to everybody for being with us again. I feel very privileged to be able to speak with you and share these experiences with you. If you want to get in touch with any of our guests, please contact at the moment because the website is not released yet. Please contact Kathy at kathyroots.com and we will put you in touch directly with our speakers. And over the next few weeks, please stay tuned because we're going to start looking at some of the technical skills that teachers have and that can be transferred into the corporate world. So stay with us, stay tuned and stay well. Ciao for now.